Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash WYS. Supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on Alzheimer's disease. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Dr. Sharon Cohen and Dr. Larry Culpepper. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, this is Larry Culpepper from the Department of Family Medicine at Boston University in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to this activity on the neuroinflammation in the development of Alzheimer's disease. Joining me in the discussion is my colleague, Sharon Cohen, who's a behavioral neurologist and medical director of the Toronto Memory Program in Toronto, Canada. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a most complicated and progressive neurodegenerative disease, but it's the leading cause of dementia and may account to 70% or more of cases worldwide. Despite active research, while we can delay its onset, there is no current prevention, no cure, and no disease-modifying therapies that we can offer our patients. We look at the natural history of Alzheimer's disease, and we see that it um, evolves over many decades of our uh, lives, you know, really from the 40s or 50s, maybe even earlier in some individuals, uh, on into older age. So we start out in a preclinical phase where certainly as patients sit across from us uh, in our offices, they are uh, cognitively normal. But then at some point, they progress to very mild symptoms. Uh, and those may become concerning to them. They may be concerning to their families. Uh, but they have yet to lead to major impairment. And then as we progress further, we do have mild uh, impairments that grow uh, both in terms of cognitive function and in other functions in their lives. And that's where the disease becomes uh, much more evident to us as clinicians and to our patients and their families. That course may easily be uh, seven years, eight years, nine years. Um, and that certainly gives us uh, you know, rationale for looking at what can we do both to decrease uh, progression, but ideally to intervene in a curative or even uh, uh, disease-modifying preventive uh, uh, mechanisms. And Dr. Cohen, can you explain what exactly is involved at the amyloid uh, uh, hypothesis? Yes, sure. So the amyloid hypothesis was proposed several years ago and views amyloid as a central and early factor in the generation of Alzheimer's disease. So amyloid is formed from the amyloid precursor protein 
and in rare autosomal dominantly caused cases of Alzheimer's disease, there are gene mutations that increase the formation of beta amyloid. In the more common sporadic type of Alzheimer's disease, there may be problems clearing amyloid. But regardless, amyloid accumulates in the brain. When amyloid reaches a certain threshold in the brain, we start to see tau become hypophosphorylated. And tau is an essential part of, uh, of the uh, skeletal system within neurons. And when tau starts coming off microtubules, neurons lose their function and their ability to uh, produce the, the chemicals that we need. And we get uh, fairly widespread uh, neurodegeneration brain cell death, loss of synapses. So amyloid and then subsequently tau are felt to be the key drivers of Alzheimer's disease. We know, however, that the pathobiology of Alzheimer's disease is actually more complicated than that. Thanks, Sharon. So the biology of Alzheimer's disease is clearly complex, and it's not all about amyloid, or even amyloid and uh, tau, and the phosphorylation of tau. Um, as we learn more about the cascade, the amyloid cascade hypothesis, we've come to understand that inflammation, and particularly neural inflammation, is an important component, and that we may need to build it into the overall management strategies of uh, this very pathological condition. So how might chronic neuroinflammation affect recognized Alzheimer's disease pathologies uh, involving beta amyloid and tau. Thanks, Larry. Yes, neuroinflammation has gained recognition as an important player in the pathobiology of Alzheimer's disease. And the original concept was that neuroinflammation arose as amyloid and hyperphosphorylated tau accumulated in the brain and microglia would then try to engulf these phagocytose plaque or tangles and clear them from the brain. So it was a late stage reactive process. Um, and in some cases, people would say this was protective. They were walling off the offending toxic protein. Our understanding has changed. We think that uh, neuroinflammation is a complex phenomenon both the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system are involved, and there are central uh, immune components, as well as peripheral or systemic uh, uh, components uh, that contribute to neuroinflammation. So what, what we understand is also that the neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's disease is not a late phenomenon, but is probably occurring right from the beginning. The main uh, immune cells of the central nervous system are microglia and astrocytes. And both of these cells are plentiful. They're both involved not just in uh, immune regulation and protection against pathogens, but in the case of microglia, they're also involved in synaptic health and uh, brain health with secretion of neurotrophic factors such as brain-derived neurotrophic factor. In the case of astrocytes, we have this additional function of 
um, protecting the blood-brain barrier with astrocytic feet actually lining the um, blood-brain barrier, the endothelial cells. So when amyloid, either soluble or later plaque-bound amyloid, presents itself as a pathogen, not a virus or a, the usual pathogen, but a toxic aggregated protein, we get activation of microglia and astrocytes. And in the activated state, these immune cells start secreting cytokines, and with uh, microglia in the M1 activated state, these are pro-inflammatory cytokines that uh, can have neurotoxic properties, and they include interleukins, but also uh, tumor necrosis factor. And ultimately, uh, there's an upregulation of reactive oxygen species and nitrous oxide. So these are damaging to the brain. If it was a normal uh, pathogen, a biologic pathogen, the microglia would then convert to the M2 stage, which is anti-inflammatory and have greater phagocytic properties. However, in the face of a never-ending chronic amyloidosis in the brain, we have this sustained M1 stage of uh, microglial activation with chronic cytokine production. And with the astrocytes, a similar situation with the chronic sustained bombardment of amyloid, we get some atrophy of astrocytes, so the blood-brain barrier becomes more leaky and we get damage. It's important to realize that while the immune cells don't cross the blood-brain barrier by and large, cytokines can cross and they go into the uh, peripheral bloodstream and they can trigger peripheral immune cells to recruit uh, monocytes or macrophages or to signal uh, cytokines that then go back and uh, add uh, pro-inflammation to the central nervous system. So it's a very interesting, vicious cycle and very complicated. Well, and it sounds like it's one that, that's not just all in the brain, but uh, certainly there's a, a lot of crosstalk between what's going on in the brain and the uh, inflammatory processes that may be occurring uh, in the periphery. What are other mechanisms of neuroinflammation that might be involved? When we look at the um, genome-wide association studies, we see that there are several genes that are known to increase risk or be associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease that actually deal with immune regulation. One of these is the TREM2 gene, and when mutated, it uh, causes interference of phagocytosis, but there are a number of other immune regulatory genes that contribute to the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So with systemic inflammation, this is a very interesting story. We've known for a long time that if you treat people with systemic diseases, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, an inflammatory disease, um, you reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And we know that chronic, even low-grade systemic inflammation can cause priming of astrocytes and microglia to produce more cytokines and be in a pro-inflammatory state. Perhaps we can uh, treat systemically as well or better control systemic inflammation in the hope of reducing central inflammation. So how early can we go in Alzheimer's treatment? We know that 
neuroinflammation starts very early. One of the markers of astrocytic health or synaptic health is actually um, glial fibrillary acidic protein, and this goes up very early in Alzheimer's disease. So can we treat in the preclinical stage or the pre-dementia stage, the MCI stage of Alzheimer's disease, with immune-targeted therapies. That is something that is uh, being widely explored and probably not uh, in isolation ultimately, but along with amyloid and perhaps tau-targeted therapies as well. Well, thank you, Sharon. I certainly come away with a much better understanding of how there may be multiple other factors that we need to research and that may provide us with uh, therapeutic uh, new uh, targets as we try to manage our patients with Alzheimer's disease. So please stay with us for the second segment. Hi, this is Larry Culpepper from the Department of Family Medicine at Boston University in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the second part of this activity on neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's disease. Joining me in this discussion is my colleague, Sharon Cohen, who is a behavioral neurologist and medical director of the Toronto Memory Program in Toronto, Canada. So in our first segment, we clarified the pathologic processes involved in Alzheimer's disease, both in terms of the amyloid cascade hypothesis and its involvement with both amyloid production and tau uh, and tau phosphorylation, and then a cascade of neurologic damage uh, that uh, is forthcoming from those. But we also saw that neuroinflammation may be a very important component and contributor uh, to that process. So how does this affect current prevention, management, and the ongoing uh, research in this area. What is there that we can take away uh, for our patients uh, who we see daily in primary care and geriatric care? So, uh, Dr. Cohen, how we might intervene in primary care uh, in um, uh, either delaying the onset or delaying progression uh, through lifestyle changes? Sure. We know that lifestyle is important. Uh, We know that for Alzheimer's disease, there are risk factors that can be divided into a modifiable group of risk factors and non-modifiable. So one's age, one's genetics, one's family history, uh, these uh, are largely unmodifiable. However, fortunately, there are many factors across the lifespan Uh, that can be modified, and these include uh, dietary pattern, uh, so a a diet that is um, um, replete in fruit and vegetables, low in animal fat, and red meat is thought to be healthy for the brain. and low in so, excess calories. <laughs> yes, yes, that too. Low glucose, low salt. Yes, we can add that too. And yeah. avoidance of smoking and excess alcohol, again, felt to be protective to the brain. Um, 
depression or chronic anxiety are risk factors for a disease like Alzheimer's. They trigger chronic um, uh, stimulation of cortisol, which can be toxic to the hippocampus. Diabetes is another risk factor, and we can talk about these in more detail. Early in life, we want to make sure that people achieve their optimal level of education because we feel this builds cognitive reserve, and lifelong learning is important. And we want to have people exercise and do all kinds of things that promote brain health, not just physical health. And I, it, you know, certainly I think one of the key concepts that I can take to my patients is Alzheimer's disease is not just a disease of old people, you know, those folks over 65, 70. Uh, it's not a retirement age concern that you deal with then, that it really is a process that grows uh, really throughout adulthood. The Lancet Commission in 2020 updated their list of risk factors for dementia, and they included a total of 12, that's three more from their 2017 publication, um, and they assigned relative risks of dementia for each of these risk factors, and importantly, these are 12 modifiable risk factors they have to do with preventing head injury, hearing loss, or treating hearing loss, smoking cessation, uh, obesity, uh, so a lot of vascular risk factors and, and improving brain health through uh, you know, reduced social isolation, physical inactivity, uh, trying to reduce that. And so the feeling is, according to the Lancet uh, Commission, that up to 40% of dementia could be reduced through risk factor modification. And that's, that's a huge percentage. So it behooves us all to address our patients in a manner constructive to recognizing and reducing dementia risk factors. And that certainly gives us something uh, very tangible to take back to our patients in daily practice. So what are some of the specific um, challenges in managing neuroinflammation and how might that lead to, um, to us having some targets there that we can go after? Some of the common diseases that we treat, obesity, diabetes, and others, are associated with inflammation. And for example, midlife obesity is identified as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, and this may be because white fat, so the adipose tissue, contains a lot of activated macrophages that secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these, as we talked about in the first segment, uh, get into the brain and cause the brain, uh, microglia and astrocytes, to be in an activated form and, and hence a perpetuated central nervous system uh, pro-inflammatory state. So managing obesity is important, not just for all of the other uh, benefits of, of having an, uh, you know, an appropriate weight, but to protect the brain from this pro-inflammatory state that obesity can cause. 
Similarly, treating diabetes. Uh, of course, we know that hyperglycemia unchecked is uh, dangerous for one's health in many, many ways, and there are many and organs that suffer from uh, um, insufficient insulin or insulin resistance. But the brain itself is vulnerable, and the brain relies on glucose as its main fuel, and there is insulin resistance in the brain uh, that can occur, and certainly with diabetes. So that's very interesting. So managing type 2 diabetes uh, may have a very important role in reducing the risk for um, Alzheimer's disease. Let's explore that link uh, between type 2 diabetes and the brain uh, a little bit further. Sure. So we know that in type 2 diabetes, there is uh, reduced insulin and there's also peripheral insulin resistance. In the central nervous system, there are insulin receptors and they are plentiful in the hippocampus, a key memory area of the brain, and also in the cerebral cortex. Uh, and uh, insulin and appropriate handling of insulin and glucose are essential for normal brain function. So it's not just in the periphery that we have this issue. When you have insulin resistance, this increases mitochondrial dysfunction. And the mitochondria are the energy storehouse for the brain and the rest of the body. And when you have mitochondrial dysfunction, this in turn triggers an inflammatory response, this pro-inflammatory cytokine storm. Uh, and it's not just cytokines, but tumor necrosis factor, C-reactive protein, and others that we've talked about um, can reach the brain from the periphery uh, and contribute to priming of the uh, microglia and astrocytes and perpetuation of this pro-inflammatory state. So it's very, very important that we uh, consider uh, treating diabetes um, uh, seriously for brain health and reducing the risk of dementia. We know that obesity itself also may uh, be a major contributor, and that individuals as they elevate uh, their BMI also move into a state of chronic elevated inflammation, and that that itself uh, can lead to increased risk of dementia. And in fact, we do know that individuals not just with diabetes, uh, but with obesity, are at increased risk of later developing uh, full-blown Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and there are a lot of factors involved, glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity, uh, blood pressure, oxidative stress, all of these may be additional contributory factors. So what are current areas of clinical research uh, for Alzheimer's disease that might bear fruit for us in the future? So fortunately, we have a fairly robust pipeline of uh, drugs under development to treat Alzheimer's disease. About two-thirds of the drug development pipeline in Alzheimer's disease is aiming towards disease modifications, whereas a smaller proportion, about one-third of the pipeline, is devoted to improving symptom treatments. 
what we see in terms of the largest number of compounds is that they target the immune system and get at neuroinflammation or different mechanisms of, uh, of uh, the immune system to try and uh, contain Alzheimer's disease. We have a lot uh, to look forward to in terms of possible new mechanisms uh, that affect the um, progression of amyloid uh, dysfunctions into Alzheimer's disease uh, in the future. What is the call of action for primary care clinicians? Uh, it really is around um, lifestyle modification now, uh, but also being alert to what is coming down the line in terms of new therapies that may allow us to intervene much more effectively than we currently can. Um, where do you see the management of Alzheimer's disease progressing in the next three to five years? I think you're absolutely right that um, attention to lifestyle factors, increasing brain reserve, preventing harm, containing, you know, and controlling uh, inflammation both in the periphery and neuroinflammation, these are all very important. And I'm hopeful that we will have disease-modifying treatments come to the market soon to have uh, therapies in the future that will directly tackle some of the key pathobiologic mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease will also be very welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today, uh, Sharon. And I hope this session has been helpful in terms of moving uh, the conversation <clears throat> from a very narrow focus on uh, uh, amyloid to one of understanding that there is a lot more uh, that we can do, uh, you know, certainly here uh, related to inflammation, both peripheral and neuroinflammation, to impact uh, the origins and progression uh, of the disease that we recognize when it gets to the stage of MCI uh, and Alzheimer's disease. Thank you for joining us. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.